0: To today's lesson there are a few preliminaries that we need to talk about and the schedule is one of them. Uh, you will see Lonnie, Lonnie here's some right here. They don't have long arms they can't raise them up very high. <laughs> is that we will be covering in September, October, and November the Lord willing Uh, The reason for giving you this schedule sheet is not only so that you can see dates when we study, but what we study on those dates. If you happen to miss a class, you'll know what's coming up in the next class. And I want you to also be aware of the fact that these Bible classes are recorded. You can go to the website if you miss a class and you can listen to it uh, on recording. Um, Each week, you will see two different lesson sheets as you come in. One of those lesson sheets is for the current lesson. The other one is for next week's lesson. I encourage you uh, to be sure that you have both of those. Um, it, it, It always helps if you look at the outline Before you come to class, we we will not necessarily follow the outline exactly, but it will help you to know what's going to happen if you will look at that before you come. And uh, uh, Peggy, one of our secretaries, has said that if you need a lesson sheet that you missed, if you'll contact the office, she can either email it to you or mail it to you. If you want to have all of the lesson sheets for the quarter, yes, there are. Lonnie, you haven't worked enough. The today's outline right there, and yeah, just I think just a few. If you didn't get today's outline, Lonnie has them, and he doesn't work by the hour, so. Okay. Most of you have been in a class that I have taught. You know that my teaching style is mostly lecture. Uh, I I really don't mind questions, I don't mind comments, but I generally feel like I have more to cover than I have time to cover it, and so I don't really stop a lot and ask you to comment if something's just eating you up and you have to say it. If you'll let me acknowledge you, you can certainly say it. I would ask you to do this. We're really spread out. If you have a comment, you have to really talk loudly enough that other people can help you. I'm not sure I'm smart enough to repeat everything you've said. And so uh, if you want to comment, be sure you do it loudly enough. Uh, I I also welcome written questions. If, If you don't want to raise your hand during a class, If you'll write something out, hand it to me. I'll try to get to it before the series ends. Let's go to the first lesson. I I think it's natural for a Bible class teacher to believe that what he's teaching is important and worthwhile. And I don't think a teacher would want to teach if he thought it wasn't worthwhile. I assure you that I believe that this subject, our worship, And how to worship more meaningfully is extremely important. And and I know that for several reasons. I'm going to give you three of those reasons. There are others, but three that are really reasons why what we're studying is important. Number one is that worship affects our relationship with God. We're going to see in coming lessons, hopefully, That correct worship pleases God. Make no mistake, God is not indifferent to our worship. And really there are only two choices that can be made from worship that's directed to God. He's either pleased with it or displeased with it. God will not be neutral. He will not say, well, I don't care one way or the other. You either please him or you displease him. We'll see that, I think, as we go through these lessons. Uh, We're also going to see, though, that worship has to be correct in order to please him. It's not just a matter of if it pleases him or displeases him. It has to be correct if it's going to please him. Now, and, and we'll talk more about this during the series. Current thinking may be different. I don't care current thinking may say, hey, whatever I want to do, God will be pleased. Please don't believe that because that's not true. I want you to look at one passage. We'll maybe come back to this hopefully before the end of the class. We'll be studying it later. Look at John the fourth chapter. John the fourth chapter. You remember that the context here has to do with a woman that Jesus is talking to. She is a Samaritan. She is surprised that Jesus, a Jew, would even want to talk to her or ask her to get him a drink of water. And so this woman uh, has said in verse 20, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. Remember, she's in Samaria. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Listen. Jesus said, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. do, Do not misunderstand that sentence. I'll go back to it later, I hope. He's not saying you'll never get a chance to worship here and you'll never get a chance to worship there. He's saying not just in this mountain nor in that mountain. Because notice then what he continues. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him, see the next word, must worship Him in spirit and truth. We're going to hopefully look at that a little bit later. I'm not going to spend a lot of time with that right now. Okay, reason one. We worship because it affects our relationship with God. If it's right, God's pleased. If it's wrong, God's not pleased. That affects our relationship. We we can't say, I don't care if it displeases God or not. Surely we do. Number two, worship benefits us. You see, we're going to see that in the weeks ahead. One of the wonderful things about worship is not only is it devotion to God, giving Him honor, it really helps us. That is, if we worship correctly. Number three, some matters have greater importance because of the amount of misunderstanding or danger of misunderstanding in the subject. And I tell you, this is one of them. This is a subject that is widely misunderstood. We'll be seeing that in the weeks ahead. But not just now. It's not just that it's suddenly misunderstood. Look at Matthew 15. Matthew 15. Incidentally, I'm using the New King James Version. You may have something a little different. The Pew Bibles are New King James if you don't have a Bible with you today. Matthew 15, scribes and Pharisees, beginning of the chapter, come to Jesus and they say, Why do your disciples transgress?" The tradition of the elders, they don't wash their hands before when they eat bread. Okay, that's really important now to the scribes and Pharisees. The tradition, the things that have just come down by the ages from the Jewish elders say, you have to wash your hands before you eat. Your mother said that, didn't she? But but it wasn't really a, a rule as much as it was a good idea. Now, but notice the response of Jesus. He answered and said to them, why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? And then he gives this example. God commanded saying, honor your father and mother. He who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have have received from me is a gift to God. Here's what they were doing. They were saying, oh, mom. Dad, really would like to help you, but you know all of my funds are devoted to God. If if I took my funds that were devoted to God and gave them to you, God wouldn't be happy. So I don't have to help you. But the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother. And then Jesus said, you know, verse 6, then he need not honor his father and mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy about you? Now, notice what Isaiah prophesied more than 600 years before Jesus. This, these people, its true in Isaiah's day, true in Jesus' day. These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain, get that? In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Your worship can be vain if you follow the commandments of men rather than the commandments of God. Okay, look at Acts 17. Acts 17, second example. Where is Paul in Acts 17? Well, in verse 16, he is waiting in Athens. What he sees in Athens provokes his spirit. Because it is a city full of idols. One historian said it is easier to find an idol in Athens than it is to find a man. Idols everywhere. And and they were so conscientious in their desire to have idols that they just had an idol for about everything. Okay, that's verse 16 in Athens. Now in verse 22... Paul has been summoned, somebody heard him speaking, they made fun of him really, what is this seed picker, that babbler is in the translation, but it literally means like a bird swooping down to pick a seed up that had been on the ground. What is this seed picker? This guy has just picked up a few things, he's not really all that good, let's hear what he has to say. So Paul speaks to them, boy were they shocked. Verse 22, Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive in all things that you are very religious. The King James Version of 1611 used the word superstition. That wasn't a good translation. He's not saying you're superstitious. He's saying you're religious. You're very religious. Was that good enough? Well, he said, here's how I knew you were very religious. As I was passing through and considering the object of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. That's how religious you are. You've had all these idols for everything you can imagine, but you're thinking, wow, I may have forgotten one. How about an altar to the unknown God, the God we don't even know? And Paul says, therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing Him I proclaim to you. There was an unknown God. He wasn't the God of an idol. And Paul said, I'm going to tell you about the real God that you do not know. And he did. Okay. Here's the point. The Bible has to be our source of knowledge concerning correct worship. It. The correct source of knowledge about worship is not public opinion, it is not culture. Dear friends, it's not even what you think, nor what I think, it's what God's Word says. And if you're willing to operate on that basis, I will worship according to what God's Word teaches me about worship, you're in good shape. If your worship is driven by what's socially acceptable, what's popular, what you think ought to be okay, you're in deep trouble. You're not really worshiping. We're going to see that as we go through these lessons. The, the word, uh, the, the Bible, it not only instructs us, but it gives us some examples. And those are always helpful. We like to be taught. But we like to see examples. And here's you're going to see an example of true worship. You're going to see an example of false worship because the Bible shows us both types of worship. We will be seeing that in the weeks ahead. The word worship and other forms of that word appear 197 times in the New King James Version, almost 200. I don't know about all the other versions. It would be very close to the same. And the first example of worship itself is found early in Genesis, chapter 4. Don't go there because we're going to get that next week. The word worship does not appear there, but it's clear that it's worship. Cain and Abel bring sacrifices. Sacrifices have to do with worship. So very early in history do we see worship. When you come to Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Bible, look at what verse 9 says. Isn't it it somewhat meaningful to us that the very last chapter of the Bible should have something in it about worship? Back in verse 8, John uh, fell down to worship an angel who had been showing him these wonderful visionary things. But look what the angel said in verse 9. See that you do not do that that is, worship me, for I am your fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book, worship God. Now, an angel from heaven, powerful, mighty, says to John, not me, worship God. And that's very important. It's interesting that Anthropologists over the years have studied mankind throughout history. They've studied all kinds of different cultures, and they have found at least one thing that is common in all cultures of humanity people are worshiping beings. There is something in their nature that makes them want to worship. Now, doesn't mean their worship is correct. Uh they might look at the sun and say, you are God, I worship you. Or they may look at the moon and say, you are God, I worship you. you I've told you before uh, about India. Uh, I have seen people who worship a tree. I have seen people who worship snakes. Uh, you go to Thailand or uh, Taiwan or to China and you, you may see... People worshiping idols, uh, ancestors. Uh, so worship is not necessarily correct just because it's in you. It has to be guided in some way, but it's there. No, nobody says automatically, and it's uh, in this interesting. You have to be taught to be an atheist. Do you understand that? You have to be taught to be an atheist. You you do not, by your own inherent thinking, say, there is no God. Somebody has to say to you, hey, stupid, there's no God. So you have to be taught to be an atheist. If you, just on your own quality, look at the sky and look at creation and all of the other things that help you to believe in God, if you look at those things, you say, there is a power higher than me. Unless you're an atheist. An atheist then will want to tell you, oh, you were an accident. Didn't you know that? I mean, you, you came from primordial soup. You were an amoeba. And these worlds that we see the star, that was all an accident. There was a Big Bang Theory. They don't tell you how the Big Bang got there, but the Big Bang Theory, everything just happened to be. I'll tell you one thing and I've said this before friends it takes more faith to be an atheist than it does to be a Christian because you have to believe in the ridiculous to be an atheist okay now one of the things that we want to do through this study is not only to set out true principles of worship but we also want to encourage ourselves to improve our worship I would hope that no one is here this morning who says, I can't worship any better than I worship right now. You can. We all can. Sometimes it's a matter of getting older, getting wiser, being more instructed. But whatever the process is, if we follow it, we can worship better. And that's our goal. We've studied worship before. And that's why this particular series is called More Meaningful Worship, because we want it to be better. Two basic matters that need to be covered that are foundational to this study. One is the meaning of worship. We have to understand, what is worship? Because there are a lot of people that might tell you, worship is this or worship is that. We need to be sure we understand. If you went to an English dictionary, Webster's New Collegiate, for instance, Here's what you'd read. It's on your lesson sheet. Webster would say this, Courtesy or reverence paid to worth, acts of paying honor to deity, reverence, homage. Well, that's what the dictionary says, and that's basically the idea, but that's really not enough. You have to know more than that, I think. You know, sometimes the English will describe a dictionary will describe something that's not really the heart of it. And so what you need to do, since we're going to be guided by the Bible, is we need to say, what does the Bible say worship is? There are ten different Greek words in the New Testament that could be translated worship. Three of those words appear only one time. We're not going to deal with those. Not that they're unimportant, but we're just they're not that significant to us. Three of them appear frequently. And number one on the list, and this is on your outline, is the word proskuneo. Now, those are the English characters for the Greek characters, as you know. That word is found 59 times in your New Testament. And it literally carries the idea of prostrating oneself toward another, bowing down. Uh, it, It means to kiss the feet of Again, the idea originally would be to show your reverence one standing before you would kiss his feet or to give homage to or to give reverence to. In in early usage, when that word was first used in Greek, it did not necessarily specify to whom the homage was given. It could be to a divine being or it could be to a man. But, over a period of time, it became more specialized. And in the New Testament, it most often refers to worship directed toward a divine being, God. Okay, now, look at uh, Acts 10. Acts 10. Peter has come to the house of Cornelius. Peter is a Jew. Cornelius is a Gentile. The gospel has not been preached to Gentiles. God has to nudge Peter to get him to go because he would never do that as a Jew, but he sees a vision, uh, animals, and I'm not going to go through all that. An angel prompts him to go, and he goes. And when he gets to the house of Cornelius, if you look at verse 25, as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet, that's Kaneo, isn't it? And worshipped him. But Peter lifted up, lifted him up, saying, "Stand up! I myself am also a man." Okay, I'm also a man. So you get the idea. Here, somebody who says, "I'm going to worship you," and Peter says, "No, don't do that. I'm just like you." That automatically tells us something, doesn't it? Worship does not involve equals. That's why Peter wouldn't accept that worship. I'm just like you. Why should you worship me? Who you worship is one that's superior to you. And that's our understanding of worship is that we're worshiping one who is not our equal. God is not your good buddy. God is the great God of heaven. And we submit to him. In our worship, look at Revelation 19. This is kind of interesting to me in a way. Revelation 19. (laughs) This is the second time, this is the first time, John's going to have it uh, the the end of the book at chapter 22. But look at verse 10. An angel has been showing him these things, and he said, I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and your brethren and of your brethren who you have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. That same thing he tell him in chapter 22. John is so impressed. And here, here's sort of a danger, folks, in a way. John is so impressed by emotion that he thinks that the right way to worship is really the wrong way to worship. I mean, he thinks he's doing right. He's doing wrong. The angel said, don't. Don't do that. I'm not worthy of worship. Incidentally, we don't worship angels. Angels have told us repeatedly, don't worship us. Worship God. That is the message of the angel. Now, uh, there's a... I found an interesting little quote uh, I don't know, I, I never heard of Franklin Puckett before, but he wrote this. I, and I don't often read this kind of stuff, but I want to read this because I, I think you would like to hear it. The word worship is the English term that is most used to translate several different Greek words. For perhaps the Greek word most often rendered worship in the English is the word proskuneo, and it is. This may not mean much at first. But when we break it down into its parts, we get a beautiful picture. The preposition pros, P-R-O-S, means to and in the direction of, toward. And the verb kuneo means to kiss, to show devotion, manifesting love, throwing a kiss toward. Worship is... And and I'm not doing this irreverently. It's throwing a kiss toward God. Throwing a kiss toward God. You know, children do this. We don't do it very much. Children do it. Has a child ever thrown a kiss to you? That's a sign of devotion. It's not a sign of worship, but it's a sign of devotion. And that essentially is a big part of worship. It is our devotion to God. It's our expression of love for God. That's why we worship. Okay. Now, we've already seen that worship should be directed just toward God. I want to add one more thing to this because we have the time to do it. Look at Matthew, the fourth chapter. This is another very familiar passage. As you know, this concerns the temptation of Jesus immediately after his baptism. The devil has got all his plans to try to trick the Lord and trap him and test him and tempt him. And and in response to him, verse 9, after the devil has taken him up to a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, All these things I'll give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Okay. Worship God only. Now, incident, I want you to notice this. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Those are not two Ne- necessarily different ideas, worshiping God and serving God. We're going to see that in in the next word. The word latreuo, l a t r e u o, appears 18 times in the New Testament. It carries the idea of worshiping by sacrifice, making a sacrifice. That, so so let me let me put two together quickly. If worship is an attitude, devotion, honor, homage, reverence, and it's also sacrifice, it involves two things at least, doesn't it? Attitude and action. Attitude and action. Worship is not just having a good feeling about God. Oh, you're God. Worship is also something that has to be carried out in order to truly be worship. Uh, Let me give you a couple of examples. Look at Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, let's go to verse 28, Hebrews 12, 28, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may, see the next word, serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. That word serve is let us sacrifice to God is what it could be translated. Look at uh, chapter 13 and verse 15. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer. Now notice the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips. Some. Some people might get thrown off a little bit when they read about sacrifice because they say, oh, well, that's what the Jews did. They brought an animal and killed it and burned it up on an altar. It's not the only way it's used. Sacrifice of praise, which is the fruit of your lips, your words can be a sacrifice to God. By what you say, we're going to see that in singing and in prayer. Uh, It's going to be true. Now look at Romans 1. Romans 1 and verse 9. Romans 1 verse 9, Paul says, For God is my witness, whom I serve, that's it, with my spirit in the gospel, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. Paul was making a sacrifice, but he was doing it with his lips by praying for them. Look at chapter 12. Romans, again, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, very familiar words. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this word, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Present your bodies to God as a living sacrifice, not a dead one, a living one. The third word, Greek word, is the word tureo, and it appears only five times, but it gives the idea of service again or ministry, service or ministry. Look at Acts 13, verse 2. Acts 13 and verse 2. As they ministered to the Lord, there it is, Minister to the Lord and fasted. The Holy Spirit said to separate me and so on. Okay, look at Romans 15. Romans 15. And this time verse 16. That I might be a minister of Jesus Christ, ministering the gospel. There it is. Of God. That the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Okay, now if you look on your outline, if you will, look on your outline, look at point C of Roman numeral 1. Here is the conclusion of that part. When these words are all taken together, we conclude that worship includes the recognition of God and His position there is an acknowledgment, and there's a missing word there, my fault, of an acknowledgment of it by praise and a willingness to perform prescribed acts of devotion. God has not said to us, I, I'm sorry, I can't give you any clues about what you do to worship me. Yeah, he's told us exactly what we do to worship him. He's tell, told us the acts of worship. Are the activities, as some people prefer to call it. And so, anyway, the final sentence says, both attitude and action are components of worship. But again, both have to be correct. Let's talk about some reasons why we worship. This will be the end of our class. Reasons why. Why do we worship God? I think we could start with just saying we're obligated to do it. He commands it. He expects it. There is some danger in that, although it's true. We may worship only because it's a duty. I have to go to worship. No, no. That is not what God ever... Jews in the Old Testament tried that. The prophets cried out against them because they were going through the motions but without any true regard for what they were doing. They were bringing their sacrifices. They hated it. They hated the feast days that were worship days. They hated all that, and God wasn't happy. Why should he have been? Okay, now, let's think of how worship, though, is not just an obligation, it's also an opportunity. And look at those six things that I listed. To express our love and thanksgiving to God, to acknowledge his deserved place, to communicate our heart's desire to please him, to express our faith in him and his word, to encourage others who are trying to do the same thing, to to let others see the benefit of worship. One of the great things about worship is it honors God. It helps us. It can help others too. We sing, and all of us sing together, and we're edifying each other. Now, in the weeks ahead, we're going to see how those opportunities can bless others and can bless us as well. Let me just uh, l- let me do one final thing, and then I think we're done. Back in John 4, 24, 19 through 24, when Jesus is talking to this Samaritan woman, there, there are four things that you see clearly, four facts. Worship is not confined to a particular place. This is not to be your only place of worship. Not to be. God said, no. I mean, Jesus said, not just in that mountain or in this mountain. You can worship God anyway. You don't have to climb a mountain to worship God. God desires our worship, verse 23. Jesus said that. God desires such to be his worshipers. It Makes a difference whether we follow the Lord's direction. Jesus corrected this woman. He didn't say, well, sister, uh, whatever you think is okay. She was wrong. And he corrected her. Misconceptions are harmful. Finally, worship in spirit and truth. And this is sort of a pet peeve of mine and, and I'm, I'm not trying to be mean toward anybody, but if you look at those verses, God is spirit. You see it? And those who worship Him must worship in spirit. Do, do you not connect those two things together? If God is spirit and worship must be in spirit, that's more than attitude. I've never heard anybody say God is attitude and we must worship Him in attitude and truth. God is spirit. He's spiritual. A spirit being. You don't worship God just with your hands and physical being. You worship Him with your spirit. It has to come from within you. But Jesus said also, spirit and truth. Some people think, well, if I just pour out my spirit, that's all God wants. Anything I think, no, no. has to be in truth. Not just truth, though. You can sit there and go through all the motions today. Everything we do will be correct, we hope. Not put your heart in it, not put your soul in it, not put your spirit in it. It won't be worth anything. Thank you for being here today. Glad to have you. Hope you can come for the rest of our times.